research that resonates. Schweitzer has not been wrong on any of his years and years of reporting on the Bidens. Investigations that matter. If your last name wasn't Biden, do you think you would have been asked to be on the board of Burisma? I don't know. I don't know. Probably not. But that's, you know, I, I don't think that there's a lot of things that would have happened in my life that, uh, that if my last name wasn't Biden. The only entities, the only people that would report on this, and Peter Schweitzer, who deserves a Medal of Freedom, in my view. This is The Drill Down with Peter Schweitzer. Hi, this is Peter Schweitzer, and welcome to The Drill Down, where we relentlessly expose cronyism, corruption, and the abuse of power. And I'm joined by Eric Eggers, Vice President of the Government Accountability Institute and an author himself. So, COVID, we're two years in. How's it going? I mean, it's it's what did I started saying last spring. People are like, how are you doing? I'm like, hey, it's a global pandemic. I'm thriving. How are you? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> right? It's a good excuse for personal failures, too. Right? You can blame it on the COVID. But look, we're on the fourth wave of COVID now. We've had three variants. We were told by President Biden last spring that we were almost done. America's headed into the summer dramatically different from last year's summer, a summer of freedom. A summer of joy, a summer of get-togethers and celebrations, an all-American summer that this country deserves after a long, long, dark winter that we've all endured. But what's really changed? More people are vaccinated, particularly the elderly, but the vaccinated are getting the virus. And even more to the point, the vaccinated are now spreading the virus. We have mandates and lockdowns. Where exactly is the summer of freedom that Joe Biden promised us in the spring of last year? We're nearly two years into this pandemic. You're a year into the presidency. Empty shelves and no test kits in some places uh, three days before Christmas when it's so important. Uh, is that good enough? No, nothing's been good enough. But look, look where we are. When last Christmas we were in a situation where we had significantly fewer vaccinated people vaccinated, emergency rooms were filled, you had serious backups in hospitals that were causing great difficulties. Um, we're in a situation now where we have 200 million people fully vaccinated, 200 million people fully vaccinated. And we have more than that who have had one shot, at least one shot. And they're getting these booster shots. You know, it's funny he's using that language, summer of freedom, because <laughs> as we talked about just a few weeks ago, they said that for children now who are unvaccinated, they're facing a winter of death. Right, right. <laughs> so hopefully somebody in the Biden speechwriting department got like a thesaurus or a metaphor dictionary for Christmas. Because <laughs> yeah. I think we kind of need to move on past the seasonal analogies of fear mongering. Well, there's only four seasons. If you've got summer right. <laughs> freedom and winter, I mean, what's left? Spring of, you know, who knows what? S spring of malcontent. <laughs> spring of malcontent, which is always there. Uh, but, you know, the finger pointing, of course, has started. Uh, Joe Biden, of course, pointed the finger at, at uh, Donald Trump early on. A lot of politicians do that. But Biden is also now basically punting. Remember, he's centralized all this power. He pushed for federal mandates, federal controls uh, and uh, federal control of treatments uh, like antibodies. Uh, but then he said around Christmas, there is no federal solution. 
This gets solved at the state level. If you need something, say something. That was his message to the governor. So he's essentially now saying, after attacking people like Ron DeSantis and other governors, he's now basically saying, hey, this is your job, not mine. I know, but that's another recycled line, right? That's right. from the old Obama DHS people. If you see something, say something. Like, guys, right. what are we doing over right, there? Right, right. That was in the context of terrorism. Yeah. Now it's in the context of the pandemic. <laughs> if you need something, say something. Right. And, and of course, lots of people said, actually, we need quite a few things. He's like, well, there is no federal solution. So sorry about that. Yes. Well, the numbers of death in the United States continue to mount. The number of cases grow. uh, And it's pretty clear that Joe Biden has failed us. He's failed us in a major way. But it's easy in a way. Uh, Joe Biden makes it so easy uh, to point out his failure of leadership here. But we also have a, I think, maybe even more important failure, which is a failure of our government institutions. Politicians come and go, but Washington is run by institutions and bureaucracies. And the major government agencies that have these trillion dollar budgets have absolutely failed us. You know what? Give us a little sense on um on how these government agencies have done so. Let's look at the case of home tests, right? Mm-hmm. Home tests, get tested at home. You don't have to wait outside in a long line with other people that potentially have COVID. Which, by the way, that's a massive problem right now, right? Because you see these testing sites across the country. We're talking to some of the production team who live in New York, down in Florida. We're seeing lines skyrocketing and around the block. And it seems like wherever you live, people are concerned. And so the line backup's a big thing. So test kits would be especially helpful. That's exactly right. And yet, there is a shortage. People mm-hmm. are lining up and the tests are not there. Uh, President Biden recently said uh, that this shortage of tests was not a failure of his administration. And this would be the third clip that I sent you. Um, you know, he ended up the interview by saying, I wish I had ordered half a billion test kits two months ago. But later in the interview, um, he essentially punted on that issue again. But here's my question and what I really want to drill down on today. Oh, nice job. Thank you. I appreciate it. I'm not the only one who can, you know, consistently message like the Biden administration with seasons. Right. You relentlessly drill. Down <laughs> exactly. But here's the question. Where is the Department of Health and Human Services, the CDC, where are these other massive government bureaucracies that are supposed to be responding to these things? Right. So arguably two of the more prominent agencies or healthcare entities that are run by the federal government that have taken a prominent role in the last two years would be the CDC and the NIH, right? The Center for Disease Controls and the National Institute of Health, the National Institute of Health run by Dr. Anthony Fauci, who's become a celebrity in his own right, and the CDC. Now, What's interesting is both of those entities are under the federal bureaucracy of HHS, the Health and Human Services. And that's run by a guy that was the former California Attorney General, Xavier Becerra. Right. Now, he, as we'll discuss in a little bit, actually has a bit of a problem in his own right in terms of, you know, people (laughs) said he, I mean, when NBC News does a thing about like the incredibly low profile of the guy running HHS. Yeah. You know, that's something that I think is worth. By the, by the way, I have to, to say, and we're going to talk about this in greater detail. NBC News describes the fact that Basira is not showing up to these meetings as an incredibly low profile. I'm wondering, could you imagine if you just didn't show up to your job yeah. and your boss didn't say to you, you're not showing up to your job. Your boss said, hey, you've been maintaining an incredibly low profile lately. And, I mean, what an yeah. absurd headline. In Why fact, not call him out and say what he's doing, which is he's not doing his job. I actually plan on doing the opposite. Next <laughs> next time you guys give me a hard time about not filling out like vacation form slips and stuff. I'm like, no, I'm just keeping a low profile. <laughs> hey, it works for uh, Becerra, right? <laughs> That's exactly what I'm going to do. But- so 
the NI, NIHS and uh, CDC are both under HHS, and we'll right. talk about the HHS guy. But but the CDC, we actually did in a video version of an earlier iteration of this podcast some research on the CDC right when COVID was happening. We'd say, well, maybe part of the reason why we're having a problem in terms of our national response to this is that the CDC, the Center for Disease Control, their budget, if you've been paying attention to it historically, has suggested that we've had other priorities Indeed. than just preventing diseases, right? So the CDC's annual budget is $7 billion almost, and that's 200% larger than it was 20 years ago. So it's growing. It's growing dramatically, but that doesn't mean we're getting better at actually preventing diseases. They're actually not focusing on disease control. No, less than 10% of the CDC's budget in 2019 actually went to emerging zoonotic infectious diseases, which happens to be the category that COVID falls under. Yeah, this is remarkable because, of course, the CDC was originally founded right. to control the spread of diseases and to provide things like vaccine and preventative measures to make sure you don't have pandemics. That's what CDC was originally set up to do, but they're doing a lot more broad uh, things now than they were in the past. Well, just like its parent agency, HHS, HHS, Health and Human Services includes and Bastera has been focusing on things like making sure that you can have gender transition surgeries. And, <laughs> right, I mean, right. there's a lot of other things that yeah. fall under health under the Biden administration. And it that's maybe fine until actual health emergencies emerge. Right. And you say, well, how come we're not better equipped to do this? CDC's no different. Uh, there's a ton of mission creep. One analysis actually said that the CDC duplicated the work of over 19 other government agencies. Yeah. And it oversees things not even remotely related to controlling diseases. Uh, an Obamacare rule, for example, let CDC regulators impose a federal universal motorcycle helmet law. Uh, the CDC has also been spending money historically on things like transgender beauty pageants and safe sex events with porn stars. They even, uh, under Obamacare, let them impose uh, or actually allocate $10 million to study violent video games and media images. So yeah, that, that has a lot to do with disease control. So if you look over the last two years and you said, so, hey, we're two years into this pandemic. How come nothing's different? How come we're not better at dealing with this? I think as we like to do, one of the things we do is follow the money. And well, the money's been going to a lot of places historically that aren't super helpful when combating the global pandemic. Yeah. And people wonder, you know, uh, uh, average Americans out there that don't live in the bubble of Washington, D.C., they wonder, how does this happen? I mean, why does the government agency not just focus on what it's supposed to do? And of course, the short answer is the money. You go where the money is. And, you know, the Centers for Disease Control is only going to get a certain set of money if it's focused on disease control. Yeah. And if you're running the CDC, you want to expand the budget because you expand the budget, you get more power, you get more staff. Your salary goes up because your salary is determined by the size of the government agency. Your ability to cash in once you leave the CDC grows because you have more power. So this is why you get them uh, engaging in mission creep, going beyond what the confines of what they're supposed to do. And I think this is one of the biggest myths and problems that people don't understand about Washington, D.C. Bureaucrats are self-serving. We want to believe if they're at CDC, their primary focus is disease control. I would argue their primary focus is getting ahead for themselves as it is in a company anywhere else. And the problem is when you have a crisis like this happen, 
what do you get? You get they're completely caught flat-footed. They don't know what's going on. I mean, remember CDC and NIH early part of the pandemic was saying, oh, go on a cruise. It's not a problem. This is going to be just like the flu. I mean, they were completely wrong. And yet they were engaged in all these other kind of uh, things, including motorcycle helmet laws. Uh, you know, it's really quite, quite ridiculous. And you wonder why the CDC and even NIH now is reversing itself on some of the key parameters they were releasing to society well now it's actually okay to do certain things and you don't have to quarantine for more than five days and oh actually it looks like vaccinated people can spread the disease and cloth masks not that effective so if we'd been spending all this time studying things then maybe the level of advice we got would be more expert as opposed to ad hoc which is why it's being reversed so regularly now which is why i think people get so frustrated right it's not just the cdc that's been doing other things and not exactly been on the ball as we mentioned health and human services secretary becerra has been not exactly keeping like me in the office a high profile (laughs) so you know he actually went eight months after he got appointed right eight months before even visiting the National Institute of Health, which is unbelievable, one of his major deals. Yeah, he's supposed during a pandemic. He has oversight yeah. of NIH. He waited eight months to actually visit the place. Not visiting NIH, not holding any press conferences for national reporters that yeah. they can then regularly ask him questions. Now, when he goes on the road to promote different things that aren't necessarily uh, vaccine or COVID-related right. entities, he does take questions from local reporters. But it's so bad. I mean, this is not just Eric Eggers and Peter Schweitzer host of a conservative leading podcast criticizing this guy, something called the American uh, Healthcare Journalist Association actually wrote a letter and said, hey, what the heck? They said, quote, it's time for Secretary Becerra to come out of hiding. <laughs> the, the public deserves to hear from the cabinet member responsible for the programs and policies that affect our health. Oh, that's a ridiculous, <laughs> ridiculous request. But I think it's consistent. So his absence and his relatively lack of profile and lack of engagement. I mean, he's sure see the spotlight to Anthony Fauci, see the spotlight to people in charge of the CDC. But you're in charge, right? No, no you're in charge. Somebody's got to be in charge, right? And some people have tried to defend him and and say that, well, you know, he's a, he's a lawyer, he's not a healthcare professional, so you know, people aren't going to have the confidence in him you know, leading. Well, you know, look, let's get real. Uh, Fauci himself. I mean, he has a medical degree, but he's been a government bureaucrat for basically 40 years. Uh, And it doesn't matter. We're not asking Basira for health advice. We're asking him to explain what the elite government agency in response to this pandemic is doing and not doing. So the fact that he's absent and by the way, he's focused on these other issues like the border, Um, not by the way, the border related to the pandemic as in trying to get people tested and and uh, dealing with illegal immigration as a health care issue. The head of Health and Human Services is dealing with a border, not as a health care issue, but as a, quote unquote, human rights issue. This guy's an activist. Uh, he is not a health professional and he's not somebody that should be leading a health agency. No. In fact, NBC News asked the White House uh, when they had an event at the National Institute of Health. The NBC News asked the White House whether Becerra had been invited to this December event. And the response was from a White House spokesperson, quote, Secretary Becerra is leading an agency handling some of the most critical issues our country is facing today, including this is their response. Like, hey, was he at the National Institute of Health event in December? Yeah. Yeah. The response from the White House, he's got a lot of other responsibilities, including tackling reproductive freedom. Oh, yeah. 
fighting to lower prescription drug prices, and yep. expanding access to high-quality, affordable health care. Yep. So one Republican House member suggested that basically means that Becerra is too busy playing politics to be bothered with a global pandemic, the COVID response, fentanyl problem, and the health of unaccompanied minors on the border, according to this, health, this House Republican, quote, don't even make the White House list of top three things the HHS secretary is working on. Yeah, and yet Becerra said when he accepted the position and was confirmed by the Senate, his number one priority was going to be what? fighting covid he said that was his number one agenda point and and yet he is off playing politics and by the way in a way we shouldn't be surprised i mean becerra had this reputation in california as well, attorney general political operative yeah political operative uh, even the los angeles times ran an editorial the the liberal left-wing la times ran an editorial saying how he was politicizing the initiative process in california in other words if you get enough petitions you can put something on the state ballot and his office gets to write the language describing what the bill is and they call them out saying that it was slanted it was distorted he was politicizing the process. So this is a highly political guy who is not a healthcare professional, who is AWOL in the midst of the pandemic. 800,000 plus Americans have died, and he is off dealing with these other, frankly, tangential issues. My favorite Xavier Becerra story was when he was attorney general. He was very critical of and I think even sued to stop the use of Republican ballot gathering uh, unofficial drop boxes during the election. Right. And then eventually I think he had to drop that lawsuit because like, hey, you realize it's kind of, you know, they're just doing the same thing we're doing. Right. (laughs) So if you go after the unofficial receptacles, how is it any different than the the ballot harvesters to get to go around? And he ended up dropping the case. He dropped the case. Yeah. Yeah, For that reason. Turns out it's fine. No big deal. Yeah. yeah. No big deal. But no, but but I think it's interesting because now this guy and this is unfortunately how Washington works. You get people in charge of these health and human service agencies who aren't actual healthcare professionals. You did and we did at the Government Accountability Institute an analysis back eight years ago now about a previous HHS secretary and how they were spending their time. And I think it wasn't unfair to connect that to other suboptimal healthcare outcomes. Right, exactly. Um, And uh, if you look at the um, report that we did, and you can find it on our website, uh, Secretary uh, Kathleen Sebelius, um, uh, during the Obamacare rollout, uh, basically had no meetings with Barack Obama over a significant period of time. Uh, And we pointed this out in a report. It got a lot of attention. And the larger issue here is not, you know, Barack Obama per se or Joe Biden, although they're, they're real failures when it comes to these initiatives. It's who you spend your time with and what you spend your time doing is really, really important in Washington, D.C., because the president of the United States is reliant upon the people that are going to influence him and be around him. Uh, you know, the old saying in the Reagan administration it was personnel is policy. Uh, the people that have the ear of the president are going to, within certain parameters, be able to you know, steer the ship of state. And the problem is, is the fact that Basira is AWOL means that any concerns being raised by HHS you know, professionals is not being addressed at the highest levels. So the fact that we didn't have these testing kits that Joe Biden's like, yeah, maybe we should have ordered them a couple of months ago. Well, you know, the fact that the HHS secretary is not meeting with you and explaining these things um, really shows that this is a fundamental breakdown in leadership. I mean, anybody knows in a functional professional environment, FaceTime matters. Yes. That's how yeah. you elevate priorities. That's yes. how you're plugged into what the institution. Do you get enough are. FaceTime with me? I mean, every week, you know, too much, <laughs> too much much probably but but specifically just to, to close out the point on this is it's just an interesting trend under democrat administrations but when kathleen sebelius was hhs secretary um 
Barack Obama had 277 meetings with cabinet secretaries from July 2010 to November 2013. 277 yeah. of them. Yeah. And this is the time period when Obamacare is coming out, the ramp out to like the website. Yeah. Remember the, what a disaster uh, that was. Absolute failure. 277 meetings with cabinet secretaries. How many of them were with HHS secretary? Zero. Unbelievable. Zero in-person meetings over that time period. So it to the point, your priorities, like how engaged are we? And I think it's not unfair to connect that to its likelihood for success. So again, the yes. fact that we have a new HHS secretary who's not showing up, but these entities are in charge of administering the administration's response to global pandemic. It he's, just seems busy, like, he's busy doing other stuff. It just seems like it matters. Yes, absolutely. It's, it's vitally important. And And the question is, you know, Who's failed here? And ultimately, it's a failure of leadership by Joe Biden. I mean, he knows who he's meeting with. White House, White House aides know who's showing up and who's not. Yeah. And one of the tried and true things in Washington is you've got to have the bureaucracies around you because presidents need to battle the inertia of these large government institutions. Donald Trump had a massive challenge with this because so much of the deep state was opposed to him. Well, the way you try to get the bureaucracy moving in your direction is bringing in the leadership and making sure that you're being consistent. No, that's absolutely right. Two other key points just to point out about Xavier Becerra. So he he may not be super engaged on healthcare related matters, but that doesn't mean people that are close to him are not. He actually has a longtime aide, Deborah Dixon, who worked with him for a long time. And right before Xavier Becerra was appointed to the Senate, uh, she took a different job with a lobbying firm. Now, she'd been with a, a previous lobbying firm, but just always interesting to check out when people who are in the orbit of these public officials land new lobbying gigs right before these public officials happen to get new responsibilities and new orbits. So that caught our eye. We also would point out that uh, Xavier Becerra's wife, Carolyn mm -hmm. Reyes, according to his financial disclosure, receives, quote, director fees from something called the California Healthcare Foundation. Yeah. So might uh, have an interest in what HHS might is doing. have an interest. So I mean, Becerra might not be at the old NIH very often, but his wife's on top of healthcare related things in California. At least. Yeah, that's exactly right. Well, we've been discussing the pandemic, why we've had this failure in government. And I think the stepping back, the really big question is, you know, not just from the healthcare standpoint, because neither one of us, you know, I didn't even do that well in, in high school and college science. So I'm not going to pretend, but I believe you. <laughs> but, from, <laughs> but from a political standpoint, when is the pandemic actually going to end? Mm -hmm. Separate from the medical side. And I think they are disconnected because what we've seen is uh, Biden has grabbed the reins really tightly. He's tried to impose this agenda on the country. Uh, that agenda has not worked. I mean, by and large, more people have gotten vaccinated. There have been lockdowns. It seems to have made very little difference state by state. How this goes out. More people have died, uh, certainly under Joe Biden than under uh, Donald Trump. And some people argue that there's a political use to a pandemic. Right? Well, there's, gives, not, there's no doubt. Yeah, it gives you power. It gives you authority. But the flip side of that is my sense is people are getting tired. Mm -hmm. They're getting tired of the imposition and control. And the question is, how long is there a political advantage to a pandemic? And when does it become a political liability? Uh, and my sense is we may be at a tipping point when Joe Biden says, hey, this isn't a federal matter. This is a state matter. That indicates to me they realize we are at a tipping point. Well, and I also the other tell, I think, on this is that you're starting to see more and more reporting about the overlap and correlation between obesity yes. and negative impacts from COVID, yeah. which was not a thing you were allowed to say right. for the last 18 months. But 
Now it's okay to say. If you sort of peek around like, well, yes, it's bad, actually. But the best way you can protect yourself is to, you know, 60% of teenagers that are suffering negative consequences are obese. So further shifting the blame towards something called personal responsibility and, um, you know, being aware of what comorbidities you might have. And I think that's a signal that. They're saying, look, there's nothing we can do about this. Yeah, there's nothing we can do about it. And you saw that in the last press conference that Joe Biden gave uh, just a couple of days before this podcast um, where he came out. uh, People were expecting a major announcement. And basically it was go get vaccinated. (laughs) Right. As if people haven't heard that before. And if anybody that Joe Biden can persuade to get vaccinated is not vaccinated already. Mm. Uh, And then his other uh, great initiative was saying to find a testing site, Google it. (laughs) Um, so the bottom line is they are out of new, fresh ideas. Big tech strikes again. <laughs> and, the, you know, and the 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 claims and the positions and statements that a lot of epidemiologists have been making that, look, unfortunately, this disease has to sort of take its course increasingly to me seems to be where we're headed as far as our national leadership is concerned. I predict next week he'll come out and say, listen, this is just something we're going to live with, which is why we're now sliding into a spring of solemnity. And so that's just <laughs> how we're going to be. Hey, the speechwriters may steal that. They, so, uh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, that one's free. Yeah. But so it's spring for solemnity for the Biden administration and the American public. But for you, and we'll just sort of briefly tease this, we'll have a podcast next week about a new report from the Government Accountability Institute on Teachers Union. But then after that, uh, you've got some stuff to talk about, right? Yeah, I've got a book coming out on January the 25th. Um, the reason you may not have heard about it yet is the publisher always wants to hold it until the last minute. So mm-hmm. it will be announced uh, uh, about 10 days before the book comes out. There'll be a cover reveal. Um, I will say, and I've told you this, and I've told other people that work here, this is by far the scariest book uh, that I've ever done. And it is, I think, an indictment of the elite class in the United States, the Democrats and Republicans in Washington, but also Silicon Valley and and uh, Wall Street um, and our universities. It's very, very troubling. And as always, we name names at the highest levels. And it's pretty clear that um, I don't have any friends left in Washington, D.C., especially when this book is done. I'm glad you added some of those extra phrases because for a while, like it's the scariest book I've ever done. I thought it was like a kid's book, like you're a Matt Walsh again or something like that. <laughs> Peter Schweiz, it's a dramatic genre yeah. turn. It's a fiction. It's juvenile fiction. <laughs> No, it is nonfiction and we name names and uh, I think it it, it should be real, very unsettling. I will also add, by the way, the last chapter, I do actually provide solutions. I don't always do that in my books, but there are actual solutions that we can pursue uh, with leaders in power in Washington, D.C. right now. Um, so anyway, you've been listening to Peter Schweitzer and Eric Eggers uh, on The Drill Down. Uh, we invite you to go to our website, thedrilldown.com. We have news updates every Every day on the website, uh, and you can also find our podcast there. Thanks so much for listening, and we hope everybody has a great 2022.